we've covered already. So this book chronicles for us the transition of Israel from being a nation led by a series of God-appointed judges to becoming a monarchy like all the nations around them. We, we see them asking for that in chapter 8. We want to be like all the nations. We want a king like all the nations around us. In the early pages of the book, reading about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and Hannah and her family, we, we see a nation that is an absolute wreck. There's a, na there's a priesthood that is corrupt, a judge, the ruler of the nation who can't rule his own sons, and the threat of the Philistines, this external threat, is a very real and present danger for the people. Now we fast forward some 70 years as we get to the end of the book. And here we are at Mount Gilboa. The situation for the people is not nearly as different as they had hoped for. Whereas in the times past there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Judges 21-25, characterizing the period of the judges. Now there is a king in Israel, and he does what is right in his own eyes, and everyone suffers the consequences. The priesthood is no longer corrupt because they've nearly all been slain. The king can't govern his own temper, let alone anything else. And the Philistines, they're back at the door. So let's read 1 Samuel 31. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not. For he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearers saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went that night, all that night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. As we look at this chapter, I think we can organize the lessons here under four headings, the first of which is this. There are devastating consequences for sin. Remember what we looked at last week in chapter 28. The night before this battle, Saul is so afraid that he sneaks behind enemy lines at night in order to access a medium in hopes of getting, gaining guidance from the dead, namely from Samuel, the prophet who had died. However, 
while God does allow Samuel, and somehow Samuel's spirit comes back and speaks to Saul, the message he brings is not one of hope or even one of guidance. Saul, Samuel rather simply reiterates what he had already told Saul, that God has rejected you because of your disobedience. And then he adds this helpful, juicy little tidbit. Verse 19, I believe it is. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Saul came looking for intel, came looking for help. But instead he got a simple promise. You're going to lose the battle and you and your sons are going to die. So now put yourself there at the scene of the battle. Saul had his men lined up in this plain at Jezreel, and the Philistines had come out against them, and the Philistines have superior weaponry. We know that from history, that uh, the Israelites were probably working with bronze weapons, whereas the Philistines had iron weapons, and they have chariots, which the Israelites also would not have had. And so the Philistines would be confident, whereas Saul on the other side has just received a word from the dead prophet of sure defeat. So it's not surprising that this battle moves quickly from being in the plains up onto the mountainside. The Israelites are being driven back and maybe they're trying to reach ground where the chariots can't chase them up as they go up the mountain. But here we find another advantage that the Philistines had, skillful archers. The battle is lost. The men flee and fall slain on Mount Gilboa. Why is this happening? Why is God allowing his people to be devastated this way? Why are the Philistines feeling emboldened to attack Israel again after some of the embarrassing defeats that they've had in recent decades? We aren't told explicitly in the text, but I think the implication is clear. The reason the Philistines feel so bold at this moment is because David no longer rides with Saul. David's no longer with him. Notice how the Philistine leaders reacted when they saw David and his men in chapter 29. They are terrified of David. Get that guy out of here. He will kill us all. But hey, if he's not in Israel, why not attack him? Saul's sin in driving David from the land has put the nation in position to be subjugated. And note who dies in verse 2 with Saul. His sons. Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, they were slain there on the mountain with him. Remember how faithful Jonathan had been to David and to the Lord. He's not dying on this mountain because he's done anything wrong. He's dying on the mountain as a result of his father's foolishness and sin. The author of 1 Samuel has spent most of the book detailing for us the reign of King Saul. This man who began with so much promise. He's the anointed of the Lord. He at first seems very humble. He, he seemed to have some leadership capabilities as he went and freed the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And maybe at times it even seems he has some spiritual sensitivity. But all of this goes disastrously wrong when he begins to choose time and time again to go his own way rather than to go God's way. And while we, as modern individualists, like we want to just think about sin in terms of how it affects our own lives, 
how it affects us. The fact of the matter is that the Bible never sees sin that way. It's never that narrow. The effect of one man's sin, Adam's sin, caused the entire race of humanity to fall. Saul's sin had a profound impact upon his family, upon David, and upon the nation of Israel. And so too, your sin has consequences that reach far beyond your own life. It's pretty easy to look at our lives and think, well, I'm, I'm not Saul. I'm not the king of the nation. My issues, they're mostly out there. They're outside of me. The, the reverse of what I was just saying is true, right? If, if, other people's, if my sin affects other people, then other people's sin affects me. So most of my problems are other people's sin. And it's true, their sin does affect you. Other people's sin does have impact on your life. But I wonder if, if you downplay how damaging your sins are by only thinking about how they affect you, and then rationalizing away the impact on you as something that's not that bad or I can deal with it because it's worth it. I want you to ponder for a moment how ugly your sin is. Think about the lustful, hateful, or condescending thoughts you've had this week. Were you honoring in those thoughts others made in the image and likeness of God? If you weren't honoring them in your heart, I guarantee it affected your actions. It didn't play itself out in real life like it did in your head. Obviously, it really does. But Jesus says that what is going on in your heart is what God sees and judges you based on. And let's take a moment to actually think about the words you did say, the ones that got through somewhat of the filter of your brain between your thoughts and your mouth. Did you refer to someone as a fool, as an idiot? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 22, that you're in danger of hellfire. Did you speak harshly or disrespectfully to your spouse? You're running afoul of commands such as those in Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Now think about how those other image bearers of God to whom you spoke that way were impacted by how you spoke to them. What was the consequence of your sin in their heart? We could keep doing this. Uh, my, my goal here is not to guilt trip anybody. Guilt's a lousy motivator to holiness. It, it just leads us back to defeat every time. It's a, it's a self-repeating cycle. Guilt's not the goal. I'm sure Saul spent a lot of his life feeling guilty. I, I just want to emphasize as we look at Saul's life and the horrible end that it comes to, that you and I are not unlike Saul. We are sinful human beings, and our sin is a personal issue, but it is not merely a personal issue. It has impact outside of our lives. It impacts everyone around us. The devastating consequences of sin are all around us, and very often it's the consequences of our own sin that we are seeing. What do we do about this? Our second heading here is that you can't fix the situation. Saul is a man whose life, especially in its later years, was marked by desperation. Desperation to maintain some sort of control over what to him felt like an out-of-control situation. Jealously gar grasping at the throne on which he sat, 
trying to hold on to it, trying not to slip off the throne, desperate to maintain his own image. If you remember back to chapter 15, after Samuel has told Saul that God has rejected him because of his disobedience, Saul nonetheless begs Samuel, come with me back before the people so that they will honor me, so that I can save face. As if to say, well, if God is through with me, can we at least ensure that I'm still popular on earth? Like, that seems to be his attitude. And here in verse 4, Saul, wounded badly by the archers, is desperate to not experience humiliation at the hand of the Philistines. So he asks his armor bearer to finish him off. Thrust me through is his request. But because the armor bearer, we're told, fears greatly, presumably he fears the Lord greatly and worries about what God would do to him if he killed the Lord's anointed, same concern David had, Saul takes the matter into his own hands. He falls upon his sword and ends his earthly life. I want to pause here and contemplate what Saul has done by committing suicide. Was this an acceptable route for him to take? This is an important question for me. Suicide hits really close to home. Two of my dad's siblings have committed suicide. My grandfather died of an OD. We don't know whether it was intentional or not. I've had several friends and lots and lots of acquaintances and their life by suicide. There are people sitting here this morning who have seriously contemplated ending their own life. So let's talk about it. The first thing to say is categorically, suicide is always wrong. Saul did something wrong here. The Lord alone has the right to control life and death, and unjustly taking a human life, even if it's your own life, is murder. That's why they used to call suicide self-murder. It's always wrong. But we should also be quick to say that it's not a unique sort of wrong. Some people have taught that if you end your own life, that's an unforgivable sin. That it means you've forfeited salvation. Let me ask you, did Jesus die for perfect people or for sinners? He died for sinners. Is suicide a sin? Well, we've just said suicide is a sin. Did Jesus pay for that sin on the cross, or did he make a special exception? He died for that one, too. It does not follow logically, and it has no biblical support to say that that's a special sin that can't be forgiven. I do think it should be, we know it should be, and I do think it is exceedingly rare for someone who is born again to fall to such a state of depression or isolation that that seems like an option for them. But if you're sitting here this morning and you know someone who's died, who you thought was a believer and then they killed themselves, don't assume that they weren't a believer just because they came to that point. And if you are sitting here this morning and that crosses your mind, please, 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 please talk to me or talk to somebody else here that you trust. Find somebody that you trust and talk to them. Your life is valuable in the eyes of God. And this is not the answer. Which brings us back to Saul. He thinks this is his only way out of the situation. The way to avoid being mistreated. He thinks this is the action to take. This is what he should do. 
But what is the actual consequence of his action? His body is still desecrated. He's worried about being mistreated. It still happens. He's beheaded, we're told, in verse 9. And according to 1 Chronicles 10, his head is taken and mounted in the temple of Dagon. It's as if the people take, the, the Philistines take that trophy. This is Yahweh's king? Well, we just hung him up in our God's temple. They mock God. They mock Saul. His armor is taken, we're told here, and placed in the house of the goddess Ashtaroth. It's a goddess of fertility, goddess of war. And then Saul and his sons have their bodies mounted on the walls of Bethshan, a nearby Israelite city, one of the cities deserted by its inhabitants because of the military defeat. So the people run out of town because they know the Philistines are coming, and then the Philistines hang the bodies of the king and the princes on the wall as if to say, you come back to this town, this is what will happen to you. Did Saul's solution actually fix anything? No. Things got worse. In fact, this sin also creates another man's death because rather than being clearly killed or captured by the Philistines by taking his own life instead, Saul sets up the claim in the next book of an Amalekite man who claims that he, he killed Saul. We don't have time to look there, but that claim to have killed Saul cost that Amalekite his life. Suicide seemed like the way out, but it wasn't. It isn't for you because you go to face your maker. And one of the lies that people hear in their mind when they think about suicide is that their absence will make life better for other people. But it makes the lives of others around them demonstrably worse by the introduction of more pain and suffering and forcing people around them to wonder if they could have done any more to help that person. Saul couldn't fix his problem. He couldn't fix his situation. And you can't fix your problems either. Not by ending your life, but also not by trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what Saul had been trying to do for years before this. He was trying to scheme and plan his way into where he needed to be. Sin, sin is a problem that all of your thinking, all of your planning, all of your trying cannot remedy. You can't fix the situation that you're in. But our next heading is that there's someone who can. Let's rewind the clock on Saul a little bit. When God rejected Saul back in chapter 15, and eventually it becomes clear in a few chapters that, that there is a, a Messiah, there is a, a new anointed one, a chosen king, and it's David. What could Saul have done? once it becomes clear that David is the one whom the Lord has chosen. He obviously could choose to fear, well, he did choose to fear and resent David, but what could he have done differently? What could he have done differently? He could have immediately abdicated his throne and turned it over to the mighty warrior king, the slayer of Goliath. He could have done that. He could also have brought him in and just treated him as the heir apparent and tried to do all he could to prepare David for the monumental task of leading God's people. There, there are a million different courses of action he could have taken, which in some way indicated, I own up to my sin and God's righteousness in choosing another. Lord, I repent of my sin, and I submit to your plan for the salvation of this people. Saul could have done that. <coughs> Excuse me. 
There are also other inflection points where having chosen not to follow that course, having chosen the course where he's going to reject God's rule and, and try to do things his own way, he's going to persecute David, there's opportunities for Saul to turn, to change his mind. Jonathan confronts his father Saul in chapter 21. And then both in chapters 24 and 26, David spares Saul's life. And Saul has the opportunity in those moments to turn, to say, I was wrong. And, and not to just say I was wrong, because he does that sometimes, but to actually turn from his sin and submit to God. Saul refused all of those opportunities. And he died in shame on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Friends, have you been rejecting God's reign in your life? Are you still clinging to control over your choices, your decisions, your life? You have a mess. You are a mess that you can never fix. The only way out of the mire of death, the mire of sin and death, is to trust in David's greater son, the son of David and the son of God, who died for your sin. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that Jesus bore himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. By your, his wounds you have been healed. The only true source of hope and meaning is not gaining control over your own life and getting things straightened out. That's salvation via middle-class stability. And that might get you an acreage or a house in a cul-de-sac, but it won't get you into the kingdom. Hope and meaning come from knowing the one who died for you. Do you question if your life is worth living? Jesus died so that you might live. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And God has declared at the price of his son that he sees your life as valuable. If you're ever questioning your value or your worth, distrust your own intuitions distrust the voices in your head trust the god who made you and who gladly saves all who come to him through his son jesus he knows your value better than you do and you are precious in his sight finally the last thing we see in this chapter is that god is still at work this seems like a really depressing close to the book of 1 Samuel. The king is dead, his sons are dead, the army is slain. But we do see God working still. These men of Jabesh-Gilead, whom, if you remember, earlier on in the book, Saul saved in his first military campaign, one of the highlights of Saul's kingship. These men hear what's happened to Saul. They hear how his body is being desecrated, hung headless on the wall of the city. And these brave men undertake a 20-mile round trip in the dark to rescue, into what is now enemy territory, to rescue these decomposing bodies from the wall of Beth Shan, to bring them back for a proper burial. Though the Israelites didn't normally cremate bodies, it seems these bodies are probably so defaced already that the proper response is to burn the flesh and then bury the bones. This is a little glimmer of hope, that although the de this defeat suffered by Saul has been massive and devastating for the nation, God is still at work. There are still brave and faithful men who will one day rally around the new king. 
that glimmer shines through, but that hope at this point is just a glimmer. The king is dead. The army lay slain on the mountainside, and the men of Jabesh, brave though they are, are mourning and fasting. They fast for seven days. They are waiting for a new king to come. And so we live in this world. We know he who is the rightful king over every square inch of this earth. All authority both in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And so we wait patiently for his return, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the meantime, we trust. We trust that he is at work in the midst of all the evil, in the midst of in the mess of our sinful lives. And he's weaving these things all together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Would you pray with me? Our Father God, would you help everyone here to know how much you love them and how good it is to know you as our king. How much better it is to have God as sovereign in our life rather than trying to do it for ourselves. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to follow you. And help us to reach out to those around us who need to hear how much they matter to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with me.